Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles, and I'm very excited about today's episode. Jocelyn Nicole Johnson is the guest. Her debut collection of fiction, My Monticello, is available now from Henry Holt and Company. My Monticello features five short stories and the title novella. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's been generating a lot of buzz. Colson Whitehead calls my Monticello, quote, a badass debut by any measure. And Roxanne Gay calls it absolutely unforgettable. This is another remarkable book, and I'm so excited to have caught Jocelyn Nicole Johnson at this moment as she makes this incredible debut. That conversation is coming up. Today's episode is made possible by the Feminist Press, publisher of the debut novel Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body reimagines 90s adolescence, mashing up girl group series, choose-your-own-adventures, and chronicles of anorexia in a queer and trans coming-of-age tale like no other. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body is an interrogation of girlhood and nostalgia, dysmorphia, and dysphoria, it's a debut novel that puzzles through the weird, ever-evasive questions of growing up. Autostraddle calls it, quote, a delightfully weird and very queer reimagining of 90s YA nostalgia. And Booklist, in a starred review, calls it a totally accurate feeling account of the chaos of growing up. That's Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks, available from the Feminist Press. All right, so before we get going with today's conversation, I do want to deliver another quick book update. I have a new novel coming out in May of 2022. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And if you're new to the show, I've been talking a bit about the publication process in recent episodes. 
as there are many writers who listen or aspiring writers who listen who might be curious about this part of things when it comes to getting a book published. Uh, Obviously, you write the manuscript, you then hopefully sell the manuscript, and then there is this fairly long and somewhat nebulous process that you go through on the way to actually seeing the book into print. So that's where I'm at. And right now, I am uh, like at a juncture that I suppose you would call the galley stage. And uh, for those of you who don't know, a galley is, is just an advanced copy of a book. It's also called an uncorrected proof. And th- this is what publishers send out to book critics and journalists and other uh, book media people in advance of publication hoping to get coverage. It looks just like a paperback, like that you would buy at the store, you know, like a trade paperback. And just yesterday, I received the e-galley for my book, which was kind of a surprise, like the Monday after Thanksgiving. But, you know, I guess my publisher was uh, busy over the holiday. From what I gather, physical galleys are in production this week, and then they'll go out in the mail to various people shortly thereafter. So, like, you know, in a material sense, what does this mean for me? What it means is that I got to see my book's interior for the very first time. And, you know, it was exciting. Granted, it was digital, but it was the book. It was the words on the page as they are going to appear when the book is in print. It was typeset, and it was nice to see. And most importantly, I like the font like the body text, like the main text of my book, I like the font. I was concerned about this. (laughs) You know, I, I get worked up about fonts. I was probably worried more about the font than I was worried about anything. Because, you know, what I was thinking to myself, what would happen if I hated it? They do all this design work and then they, they show it to me. And what if I don't like the font? then I've got to get into an awkward conversation about that and they've got to redo it or maybe they won't. You know what I'm saying? It was kind of stressing me out. And it's a strange thing with me and fonts. And I think I'm not alone in this. I think a lot of writerly people care about fonts. Like to my eye, there are certain fonts that are acceptable on a page and there are certain ones that aren't. And thankfully, the folks uh, at my publishing house picked a good one. It's entirely inoffensive. It looks like a book. It looks like a book is supposed to look, in my, in my opinion. And it's, you know, it's typeset. It's getting real. And I should have an advanced copy of my book, like an actual physical advanced copy, I would imagine sometime before Christmas. So that'll be nice to see, to actually get to hold like a tactile object. You know, I realize this probably sounds silly to people who aren't writers, (laughs) but you go through all this. It's actually really exciting when your book becomes an object instead of just like a Microsoft Word file or whatever. And otherwise, what I have to do now is make final changes. That's the other stage that I'm at. I have to go through the manuscript, go through the book, make any final fixes that I want to make. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's getting down to the wire. And it is a little bit nerve-wracking because... I'm now close to the moment where I'm essentially going to have to declare myself done and release this book to its fate. (laughs) You know, you have to let it out the door. Let it go. So that's where things are. That's the latest. And it's exciting Uh, Once again, the novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, due out from IG Publishing in May of 2022. If you're listening and you're a book critic or a journalist or a blogger or a literary podcaster or some such, and you would like an advanced review copy of the book, just email me at letters at otherppl.com. Okay? So my guest today, once again, is Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. Her electrifying debut, entitled My Monticello, is available now from Henry Holt. It is surely one of the more acclaimed debuts of the year. Jocelyn Nicole Johnson's writing has appeared in Guernica. Uh, It has appeared in The Guardian and elsewhere. Her short story, entitled Control Negro, which is featured in My Monticello, was also featured in the anthology Best American Short Stories of 2018. Jocelyn is a veteran public art school teacher from Virginia, and she is arriving now as a writer at the age of 50. And I only say this because it's been written about in the press, and I don't normally make much of anyone's age, let alone a guest on this show. Uh, It doesn't matter to me. But I do love this part of the story, and I love that making a debut like this and having publication success of this nature can happen at any age. It is evidence of that, is it not? So if you're listening and you're in middle age or you're telling yourself that it's too late, it can't happen, and that sort of thing, let this episode 
and let Jocelyn's example serve uh, as testimony that this simply isn't true. My Monticello is a mesmerizing collection, and the title novella just knocked me out. I'm very excited to catch Jocelyn Nicole Johnson at this moment in her young career as a fiction wonderkind. So, let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, and her debut collection, once again, is called My Monticello. So I was born in Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia and then went to school in the Shenandoah Valley, which is, you know, this really different landscape. And then I moved to Arlington and taught public school there, which is kind of near D.C., right on the edge of D.C. And then um, after some travel, moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, and have lived here, you know, for 20 plus years. So the book is kind of using all these images from these places that are from my home state, you know, from this place that I know really well, but also thinking about this idea of the ways in which Virginia feels a little separate from me, or there's this, you know, this kind of membrane, this kind of separation and kind of playing with that idea and thinking about it, which, you know, has been brought into sharp relief with some recent events, particularly here in Charlottesville. And when you say recent events, I think you're referring to the events of August 2017 in Charlottesville. The uh, what, do you, what do you even call it? The race riot. It was the, it the, was the Unite the Right rally. Right um, would be there. Would be the name that. Yeah. So yes, I am definitely thinking of August 12th, 2017, here in Charlottesville, where we had white nationalist leaders kind of direct a coalition of people here to demonstrate ostensibly for the Confederate flat in defense of Confederate flat uh, statues, but who also, you know, who, who chose to present themselves with, with torches and with firearms and with, you know, flags with uh, swastikas on them and saying things like into the ovens. I mean, this was a very specific kind of presentation. And for us who lived here in Charlottesville, it wasn't just uh, a weekend. It was really a whole summer, like a, this kind of slow march where the Ku Klux Klan came and where other groups were coming to our community. So I was really thinking about this for a prolonged time. And then, you know, as many people watched, it was ultimately ended in a lot of heartache, tragedy and the death of a person. So it definitely was in response to that, but also other events here. The collection responds really specifically to an incident at the University of Virginia. The first story was really based on an incident where a black honor student was bloodied by police and it was caught on film. And so, you know, there were, it was kind of all these moments that kind of echoed bigger things that were going on in the nation, particularly in terms of race and identity, but also just this idea of what is America going to be? Who are we to one another? What do we owe one another? You know, I'm a public school teacher. I've done that for, I taught for 20 years in Virginia, art, visual arts. And so all those things got folded into my idea of Virginia. Um, and then really the history as well, going back to Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, his house, his plantation house, Monticello is about 10 minutes from where I'm sitting here. I, I want to say something about the the sequencing of these stories and my Monticello for people listening who have not had a chance to read to me in this day and age, it, it could be a novel. It could be a novella. It could be a, you know, it's a, how many 
words is it? I don't even, I couldn't. Oh my gosh. I'm really, I don't know. Okay. But I would say it's, <laughs> it's a... probably like 30, 35,000 words, I would guess. I'm guessing. But it's long. And the others are are much shorter by comparison. But I found myself thinking about my Monticello and saying, wow, she could have just published this standalone. And then I found myself thinking, actually, no. Like the 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 power of the collection is that you have these, I want to say, five short stories that precede it, each one of which captures something in Virginia that is thematically related. They're all of a piece, uh, these stories, but they're building to something. You're showing, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my take on it, having just finished the book this morning, is that you're showing kind of the, the, the seeds or, or what preceded my Monticello, the story. Do you know what I'm saying? And then you get really expansive and you take us into the near future. And um, I think after the fact, when I kind of put it all together, I was like, oof, sort of hit me doubly hard. So kudos yeah. for doing that. I, I don't know if that was your intent, but that's how it that's how it struck me. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so the novella was written last. And so I knew I was writing these stories about place. I knew I was setting these stories in Virginia. I knew I was thinking about this idea of belonging and about racial and environmental anxieties. And so by the time I got to the novella, which was the last piece I wrote, I was pulling in threads from all the other stories. I kind of knew loosely which stories would be included. There were other stories that were in consideration that I didn't end up including in the collection. And so I was really pulling threads and even pulling like moments. Like I think there's one line in the novella, which is an echo of the title of the story, Virginia is not your home, for example. And so it kind of becomes, I hope that it does. I love that about short stories, how they kind of every little bit, every little detail reflects on every other thing in the story. And so in the collection, you know, if I, this is my first collection and I want it to be like a concept album. So it definitely like, everything's pointing to everything else. It isn't just showing I can do all these different things. It's sh it's saying this is all circling around. It's like this constellation around these ideas and different ways to look at it and different voices to look at it and different, maybe contradictory truths within it too, you know, and so that it's not, um, you know, it's me writing to figure out, it's me writing to think about something. And then the novella, I do think because I wrote it last, I was pulling in those moments of the estrangement of, you know, an immigrant, like in the story, the King of Xandria, or the environmental anxieties of the mother and buying a house ahead of the apocalypse, or the questioning of America's promise from the sh first story, Control Negro, and so forth. So I do think they work together. It's got to be, this is, this is a book that's very much, uh, as I think we were discussing earlier, about having a real sense of rootedness in a place. You were born and raised in Virginia, have spent your life there, or raising a child yourself there, I believe. And with the events of, you know, August 2017, you know, in mind in particular, to suddenly feel like, well, wait, how, how much is this really my home? You know, that's kind of a question that's gnawing at you in this book, correct? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it's, what I think is interesting is that it's a question that, I've always, it's a part of my whole identity and relationship to Virginia, both 
because just because I'm a, a black woman that lives here, but also because of just my particular family history. So my my parents uh, and my brother were all born in South Carolina and all of my aunties and uncles and my grandmother and all my like a bazillion cousins. Like I always say, like when I go home, there's always like a new cousin. They're like, I'm your cousin, too. And I'm like, I will take your word for that. I can't even figure <laughs> out like how that is true, but I'm sure it's true. So I have this like. I always had this dual idea of home in a way just because my parents, even though they moved to Northern Virginia, kind of very aspirationally for jobs and so forth, they like home was South Carolina, but then home was also Virginia. So there was this kind of, you know, we drive 10 hours home to South Carolina and then we drive 10 hours back home to Virginia and that's continued, you know, they're retired now and it's still true. You know, they're my neighbors now they've actually moved to Charlottesville and they still drive back to South Carolina. It's a little bit closer now, but, and so that idea was just kind of baked into just my own personal history. But then it's also definitely part of my experience of being an American and being in this country. There's just some, there's just these very subtle, both explicit and implicit. Well, I guess, I guess I would say these subtle ways that I was told, oh, maybe this isn't your home. Maybe this isn't entirely yours. But then for me, August 12th was this very in-your-face, explicit way of saying it, which I found jarring and I found troubling and I found upsetting. And what's and the forces that underpin that, I think we've all seen um, just kind of come into the world in a new way or be renewed into the world in a very specific way. So that was like a precursor to, you know, the storming of the Capitol and some of the tensions we're seeing all over the country and, and indeed all over the world <laughs> right now. Where were you on August 12, 2017, when the Unite, Unite the Right rally happened? So in the months leading up to it, I kind of met with this group of people every week and we were talking about what to do and how to respond. And so I really had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do if I wanted to go to the downtown mall, which was kind of the epicenter of it, which is about a half a mile from my home. Uh, if I wanted to go and like kind of provide, like I knew people who did like gave medical supplies and food and like just kind of help the counter protesters. Um, I knew people who were like, I'm never going down there um, within that group. So I decided not to go down there. I was here at my home with my son. Um, my husband has an office down there and he actually went down earlier in the day. Uh, but all day, even though I didn't go down there, I was absolutely there in this sense. First of all, my yard is so close to the downtown mall. There was like a helicopter, you know, you were talking about Brad helicopters in LA. There was a helicopter circling, watching this. And so we could hear this helicopter and it just gave the sense of like a war zone in our community. So you could hear this helicopter all day. Um, I was you know, social media, I was watching and hearing reports from friends and neighbors who were both at the event and even people who were in their communities and they were sending pictures. Oh, look what uh, people left in our neighborhood and our traditionally black neighborhood. Look at this propaganda they left scattered around or I'm driving on 29 and there are people with machine guns in the parking lot of the old Kmart, you know, about to come into town and so forth. So there was this kind of constant barrage of very immediate news from people I I knew. And then there were calls from all over from my family and other places saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? All day. And so all day we were just kind of barrage. And then my husband, you know, actually went downtown briefly and then came back and was like, oh my gosh, it is so terrible <laughs> down there. It's really, really bad. And, 
you know, at one point I was supposed, I wrote an essay about this for Gornica, but I was supposed to take my son. He had like a violin lesson, like just in a neighborhood really close. And, you know, I got a call saying, well, there's a car that's being stopped by police, like between here and there. It was like, it, it we were like hemmed in by this violence, even though um, we didn't choose to go there. It was still so present in the map of Charlottesville. So there was this really the sense of just foreboding and danger. And then at some point, the helicopter stopped. We couldn't hear it. And we were like, oh, maybe things are calming down. And then we learned that it had crashed. And then we learned that Heather Heyer had been killed. And, you know, it just kind of just was a very, very intense um, day. Wait, the helicopter crashed? Yeah. So there was a helicopter that was monitoring everything. And they just had some sort of issue and they crashed killing the I think three people it was either two or three people on on board the oh, police man. people damn Why so it I... was just like a really stressful it was like so terrible it was just a really bad day yeah and I mean I, I think we all watched it from afar in uh, horror and what I found myself asking was where did all these people come from and I'm sure this is in the historical record but it's like this wasn't just people from Charlottesville. This is people from all over that descended upon Charlottesville. Absolutely. And in fact, it was people from, I think, all over the country. I mean, it was a really broad group of people. And I think a lot of those people were identified from photographs and from, you know, and, you know, we're actually having a trial right now for the organizers. It's happening right now in Charlottesville um, for some of the organizers of that event as to whether they should be held responsible um, in the sense that there was a lot of talk within the organization leading up to it about that seemed to be, or I guess the charges that they just really were encouraging this very, what the violent part of it, or at least not discouraging it. I mean, it was, it was violent by design. It wasn't like accidentally it became violent. It was the violence felt like it was, so central to to the way the protest would go and it and that's how it went so you knew you had a sense uh it sounds like you're act you know an activist or uh, you know like you said you were meeting with a group in the weeks preceding this rally to sort of get ready and plan and you knew what was coming at least in some sense so i will say i'm like i'm like the worst activist the only thing I'm worse at at being an activist is being a, a historian. I'm not like an activist with a capital A. I'm like an activist with a little A. I'm like the person who feels responsible to go say something and try to make things better. But I'm not the person who's planning the counter march or is at the front of the line. I'm really thinking about, and I was in this whole time, what is the reasonable response? And what is my responsibility? And what is the right thing to do? And really struggling like all over the place with what that that was. And not feeling like I knew the answer of what was going to be right. And I think writing this, um, that story in particular, my Monticello, the novella, was me thinking about all those questions. Like, what is a community to do when that happens, because there were plenty of people who would say, oh, if no one had counter protested, um, just going down there, that is the actual problem. And I just that doesn't feel right to me. 
But I do understand that when you put people at odds side by side, that is a recipe also for violence. I don't know what the answer is. I don't. So I did meet with people who were a little bit more. It was like a motley crew. There were people who were activists. There were people who were like, you know, there was just a mix of this in this group. I was listening to something just this morning. It wasn't uh, like political or, um, you know, related to any of this, but the guy happened to be recalling somebody who was like an activist, but was also like a nonviolent kind of pacifist kind of person. And there was a big protest and there, it was the same kind of situation, you know, where you have opposing groups in the same space outdoors. So it was kind of a tinderbox in that way. But this guy went down there with like two golden retrievers (laughs) And it like def- it created like a zone of peace around him because <laughs> everybody liked the dogs. Do you know what I'm saying? And I was like, oh, like I know that that could potentially get tragic too, depending on how crazy people are. But I was like, maybe if the shit goes down, I'll just get a bunch of puppies. <laughs> puppies would help. Just bring They're, some puppies yeah. out and see what, what happens, you know, hopefully, but protect the puppies at all costs. Like, yes. you know, they'd have to be in cages, which would really make it hard. I don't know. Do you, or just like have a sign? Like, would you like to pet a puppy? I don't know. Something just to kind of like bring people down. I think that things have gotten so out of hand in this country. And I, I guess, you know, you were talking about wanting to know what the proper response was. I, I think we kind of know what your response was. Your response was this book. And I think for people listening, many of whom are writers, I've had this conversation more than once. Like, is it like to make art in the face of all that we're facing as people, not just with race relations or uh, MAGA or the political instability in this country, uh, but also climate, you know, there's just so much facing us. Like, does it make a difference to make art? (laughs) Can this be a meaningful contribution to the conversation? I would say emphatically, yes. I I mean, for one person, there's only so much any one person can do, but this is like what you've done with this book is at least as meaningful as going out and holding a sign with a language on it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I, I stand up in defense of people making art to try to make sense of this because you're not just making sense of it for yourself. You're in dialogue with your reader and you're helping us make sense of it too. So I hope you see it that way. Yeah. I think that is a really good question and I don't want to overstate the importance of it, but I do think the stories that we tell ourselves about what has happened, what truths are like, I don't think the truth, I think there are truths, you know, there are multiple truths that come in concert with one another, the, the sto- how we see ourselves, what we think of as virtuous, what we think of as freedom, all of those stories that we tell ourselves are so important to how we behave in a common space. And I, I fear that there's are some really problematic and troubling and toxic stories that we kind of constantly are telling ourselves and not just in the political realm, although that is true, but also just in, you know, I just think of the movies and our entertainment and all the ways we see the world and what we think of as, as freedom and what we think of as tyranny. I just think that we can just, be more open to different kinds of solutions if we're hearing different kinds of stories. So I have hope in that. I'm wondering if 
all of the stories, you know, the short stories and the novella in the book, were they all written after August 2017 in Charlottesville or were some of them written before? Not at all. I think almost all of them, um, about half and half, actually, I would say. I would say I wrote uh, The King of Xandria preceded that, um, which is the story of the immigrant father, a Nigerian father who comes to uh, Alexandria, Virginia with his children. Um, and Control Negro I wrote before August 12th. That was, as I said, related to an incident at, at University of Virginia that happened in 2015. And I think I wrote it about a year later. But the other three stories, uh, Virginia is not your home. That, um, Yep, that was before as well. And then the other two stories. So Something Sweet on Our Tongues, the one of the school children and um, Buying a House Ahead of the Apocalypse. <laughs> that was written after we were a little closer to apocalypse by then. Yeah, I was going to say, buying a house ahead of the apocalypse feels very sisterly to my Monticello. Yeah, I think that I wrote that directly preceding, or I was re- working on it at the same time. And uh, yeah, that was really, those two are the are the last ones. I finished the novella last, but I wrote that in that same period of time. And much has been made, not only of the quality of this debut, there's a lot of great you know, big name blurbs, a lot of press attention and rave reviews. They've also, uh, I feel like the media has also made uh, a to-do of the fact that you're making your debut at age 50. And I just want to say for people listening, I am looking at Jocelyn right now. She, you truly look like 28 years old. I don't know what you're doing, (laughs) but I, once we finish this conversation, you're going to have to share whatever secrets you have. So anyway, I, I think it's an, it's a nice thing to highlight because I do feel like there's a lot of dread that can afflict creative people and, and writerly people when they feel like the time has sort of gotten away from them or they're never going to get their chance. Like it's it's sort of like, you know, they, they miss their opportunity. But here you are debuting in fine fashion and you wrote this in midlife. Absolutely. Like, I think that for me, it's just interesting because someone said, well, why did it take you? So I think someone asked me, why did it take me so long? And I thought, I've been doing the same thing since I was seven years old. (laughs) And I was like, why did it take you so long (laughs) to interview me about it? You know, there's a way in which I have been basically drawing and making stories for a super long time and more seriously uh, in the last 20 years. So since I was about 30 and, you know, sending out stories to literary magazines and then, you know, going to a workshop like Ten House in Portland, which is amazing. And, you know, getting an agent through reading something there and then that project not, not ending up selling, but making a project, putting it out in the world, submitting it. And then I want to stop you. What was this project? Was this a novel or another story collection or something? Or So I had... It was a story collection, but I developed it with an agent. Um, I actually had someone who was scouting at Ten House. So she had come there to, on behalf of her, you know, fancy New York agent person to find talent. And so she heard me read this piece of a story and said, oh, I really think that's interesting. Are you interested in having an agent? And I said, sure. <laughs> Do you?" Have, and she said, Do you have something you, you know, you're working on? I said, kind of, you know, I had like a couple stories and it, and much like this, it was these, this kind of constellation of stories about, um, 
that took place in a school, you know, and it had, you know, these different voices. And so I developed it with them and, you know, I ended up not selling it and I'm, you know, I didn't stay with that agent, but I remained, you know, close with the person who scouted me and she is still like an advocate for me, like through, you know, the, the second agent I got. So I wrote another, uh, I wrote a, a novel, uh, like a coming of age novel. I found a second agent on my own. We submitted it. We had near misses. We had, you know, we worked on it for a really long time together and ultimately it didn't sell. And we kind of, we didn't break up with one another. We kind of just lingered about, <laughs> we liked each other, but we didn't have a project. And then I wrote the King of Xandria, I think. And then Control Negro really is when I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I had this sense of just a very clear intention that I was going to write a story collection that was, you know, adult centered literary, but with, you know, little sprinkles of other genres in there as well. And I kind of had this sense of, you know, pinpricks in a map of Virginia, and I was going to have these different characters. I just, I kind of saw what I was wanted to do. And she was a great agent, but she's like, that's not my thing, you know? And so I said, that's totally reasonable, but I need to find someone who's super excited about the thing that I'm want to do. And so I really, because I already knew that there was no guarantee and having an agent was no guarantee to being published. I, I had a little bit of fearlessness in a sense, because there was nothing to lose because I'd already <laughs> failed a bunch of times. And so there was a way in which I thought, I want to find people that are super excited about this. And if it's published by a, a small indie press, that would be awesome. I would, I want to make what I want to make. And if, and we'll see what happens. And if it, nothing happens, that's fine too. And so when Control Negro, that inaugural story came out in Guernica and Roxane Gay tweeted about it. I wasn't even on Twitter, but someone like, I think called me and said, do you know that Roxane Gay just tweeted about your story? <laughs> and I said, wow, that's huge. And then she ended up being the the guest editor for Best American Short Stories the, the next year. So I, I absolutely... Um, submitted that story and it actually, you know, became part of that collection, which was really big because that's a collection that a lot of people teach from and a lot of people read. It's something I'd read in the past a lot of years. I'd kind of collect them. And so that gave me a little bit of clout and energy and juice to, to say this could be something, you know, because short stories, as your listeners probably know, and as you probably know, are not like the sexiest thing. It's like, <laughs> people don't think short stories are that great, especially if you're an unknown writer like myself. They really want you to come out with a novel. That's kind of our standard for introducing yourself. And I thought, well, this is my thing, and I'm going to do it this way. And I found a great agent who had, you know, come out with short story collections that were from debut authors that I thought were, were really exciting and wonderful. And we worked together and then we, we sent it out in the spring of 2020 during the pandemic. <laughs> so I get, I got sent home on March 13th from school and then I was teaching online and my teaching duties had been really diminished. And I said, I'm going to finish this novella. I had finished it, but I just, I'm going to polish it and get it ready to send out. And I just kind of that's what I did. And that summer we sold, we sold it, um, to Henry Holt. The whole collection, the whole collection. And we didn't know, we didn't know if someone would say, we just want the novella. 
there were people I talked to a, a bunch of different uh, editors who were interested in the in the work, and some of them thought that it should be split up. Some of them thought it should stay together. No, it should stay together. You made yeah, the right call. And Henry Holt <laughs> and Henry Holt wanted it, to stay. and it made me kind of excited that they wanted it to because you know it didn't fit the model, but they were still excited about it as a as a lead fiction title, which is. That's saying a lot. I mean, that they, you know, saw it that way from the beginning and they were excited about it in that sense. That's great. That's the kind of support you dream of. And I think there's so many lessons in all that you just said. You know, first of all, this resilience and this persistence, where does, where does that come from for you? And did you ever think about quitting? A lot of people do when they get the no's. A lot of people do when the first agent that you know it doesn't work out or an agent says you know what whatever you're working on now I, I like you but this isn't me um you know there's a lot of resistance on the way to publication how did you fight through that where do you get your you must have some self-belief right you believe in your project i think i mean i do think i'm persistent i'm i'm kind of proud of myself that i didn't give up but there's two things one is that i really do like writing stories and I was writing them for a long time before I was trying to really be published. You know, I had like a blog from when I traveled around for a year with my partner before we were married. I, you know, I had a blog when my son was born. I wrote essays and did local things. You know, I had other smaller things. So there was just enjoyment in doing it. And I had a writer group that I was responsible to. And so I already had this sense of just, I like doing this. So that's A. And then B, I, I did want to give up just because it was, it was, it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, I think people say you can't, <laughs> you can't, um, you know, be published if you don't try, if you don't put yourself out there, but there is a cost to being told this isn't good enough or we don't want it. You know, there's a cost to that if you're putting yourself out there. But I also recognized that being published wasn't going to be a panacea and it wasn't going to be the answer either. I kind of, through the process of having all these experiences, I kind of realized that it kind of didn't matter either way. I was going to try to be published as part of my practice of being a, a writer, right? I was going to try to have a sense of audience. I was going to write as if people would, might read it someday. I was going to try to be thoughtful about what I said and be precise and make something that I could be proud of um, without so much emphasis on what other people were going to do because I, I couldn't control that. And in the end, that served me. It could have just as easily been that I wrote another thing and it could have been just as good or better or worse and not found publication or found, you know, could have been worse and been the thing that got published, you know? So it's kind of two different things, what you do and what the world does. And I think something about my upbringing, when I think of my parents, when I think of, I mean, frankly, of being like a black American, I think there's something about just, you're going to do, you have to conduct yourself the way you're going to conduct yourself. And you're going to recognize that that doesn't always mean the person next to you or responding to you is going to conduct themselves the way that you feel you deserve to be received, but you're still, what are you going to do? It's kind of like white supremacists are coming to your neighborhood. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's kind of comes back to that same way of being like, you have to decide at some point how you're going to deal with it as best you can. I found that a lot of these stories have a teacherly quality to them. I think I was, I knew that you were an art teacher uh, by trade for, like you said, 20 years. And you're teaching what, uh, what grade level? 
So I, I did stop teaching during the pandemic. Right after I sold my book, I thought, hmm, there's no vaccine. I could go get COVID or I could stay in my house and be safe. Um, but I but I taught almost always elementary school. So anywhere from pre-K, three-year-olds and four-year-olds to 11, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And I did teach middle school for a little bit, but mostly the youngest, littlest, you know, grubbiest, cutest kids kind the, of thing. The geniuses. They make the best they're, art. <laughs> they're so un, uninhibited. They're so, yeah, there's, you know, the there's an age where you're just making it. You have no sense of shame, no sense of shame and no sense of even worry. You know, it's just like I made the thing. I love that age. And I think it's a really nice time to first talk to someone about art, you know, before they have a lot of self-consciousness or or stiffness about it. Right. I was going to say, there's got to be a lesson in that. You're probably getting inspired with these students handing you, like they're not worried at all. And here you are like hand wringing over your manuscript and they're just like, <laughs> and they make the, I don't know. I love my kids art. Like I'm not a hugely sentimental person, but I do find myself like photographing and archiving my kids art because it's just the best. I love it. It's the best. And, yeah. you know, you think it's just your kids, but I have to say I used to, when I was teaching, you know, social media has come up so much, but I started to just post kids art and people loved it. It was like during these horrible time, you know, things were pretty rough, you know, for a period of time, just for a lot of people I knew where they just felt not so great about how things were going in the world and just seeing like, just like kid art is just like a bomb. <laughs> it's like, be. it's like bringing golden retrievers to, uh, you know, a unite the right rally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's something teacherly about these stories. I don't know if I would have, I guess I would have picked it out had I not known that about you, but I guess you must be conscious of this, that there's a, uh, you know, school and teaching, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply is filtered through all of these stories. Yeah, I think I'm not always conscious of it at every moment, but certainly that is like my, that's my frame and that's my go-to in a lot of ways. So yes, in the story of the King of Xandria, even there's a father who is basically, you know, an immigrant from Nigeria who's kind of undocumented in the country and his child is going to school and he's thinking, you know, he's interacting with the school kind of as this proxy for what, this new city he's in is and what this new country is, he's in is and how they see his son and how he does. And so I think schools are really, um, my experience as a teacher just is going to come through. I think when you write, you know, what you know, everything you know, you need all the things to try to create this world. One really funny way that I um, thought about teaching in the collection was in the novella, my protagonist, Anasia, is studying to become a teacher and I really used, you know, you know, in the story, this kind of desperate group of people are up at Monticello and they're taking refuge during this time of unraveling and they are not, you know, all friends. They are kind of pressed together. And the thing that reminded me the most of was this idea of, you know, school on the first 
day, you know, when you have a classroom of people who may live in the same city, but may have very different experiences. They come with their different personalities. They come with their different communities and teachers are kind of tasked with creating a classroom community that serves all those people and and where everyone feels comfortable and where, where they can learn. So I used, I used the idea of kind of the first day of school as my, as my characters create, you know, this, this list where they kind of decide what they're going to do for one another and how they're going to conduct themselves. So that was very much stolen from the first day of any, any public school that you might go to. (laughs) Any good teacher knows, you know, kind of create this. I could almost see the whiteboard in the background at Monticello, right? You know, (laughs) but I want to talk about my Monticello at length. I mean, we've already discussed it some, but it really is brilliant in in execution. It's beautifully told, but it's also conceptually brilliant. And it feels to me like one of these lightning in a bottle ideas. Um, I was trying to think of how to characterize it for people. And this is like robust storytelling in the sense that it's great at the sentence level. It's great at the plot level. It's great at the character level. <laughs> um, it is high concept, as we say in Los Angeles, uh, yet literary and terrifyingly plausible. It has it all. And I'm wondering if you recognized it. Like, how, like I want to know more about how the idea came to you and like you must have been so excited in writing this because it's such a good idea. You must have been like, oh, God, this has got everything in it. And, you know, I could go on and on, but it's really, really great. And I know having, tr- having tried to think of such ideas in the past with no luck, I mean, it's hard to land on one of these. They sort of have to land on you almost, you know. So just take us into how this came to you. Yeah, well, I, I will say first you never know, you know, you have a story idea and you never know if it's good. But I, I did, I remember like kind of early on, I was like, I have an idea and it's like, I kind of knew it was a good idea. I did. I knew that at its core, it was just like a good idea. And, and by that, I mean, just the driving energy of it was going to pull, I could put, I could think of all these things that could happen and all these things that could be pulled into it. And that was that was really exciting, but it also kind of came from this dread, right? So going back, we talked about the story was a reaction to August 12th in Charlottesville. Well, I didn't start writing it till about a year later. And during that year, I'd been attending all these events about kind of local black communities here in Charlottesville and the history of you know, just communities in general, but also unfortunately the history of racism and in housing, uh, in schools, we had massive resistance here where all the schools shut down in resistance to segregating for two years. So no one had school instead of segregating and letting black children come in. And then it, it kind of just kept going back until we got to the time of the founding fathers. It kind of got back to, you know, the slave auction that's right in front of city that was in front of city hall, you know, and then going back to Thomas Jefferson and Monticello. So I was starting to kind of tie this very specific local event that I'd experienced this traumatic event in August 12, 2017 to the past. Right. And so I was starting to think about it, but what really was the spark of this particular story was I went to an event 
that was about Sally Hemings and someone stood up in the audience at the end of the event and was introduced as a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And it was a woman who lived here and, you know, they didn't say much more about it, but I saw her, I literally saw her pumping gas like two days later. I think like when you see someone, then you see them everywhere. You know, it was like, she was like this, I was like, that's that woman. And then I kept thinking about, it just made me think about people live here who are intimately tied. People live here in this community that are intimately tied to this history. And what does that mean? And how does that relate to me? And so that's when Monticello in particular kind of got woven in, in my imagination in relation to this idea of race relations. And so I was thinking about what the past is, what the legacy of that past is, what the present is, and then what would the future be? And then, so it just became a matter of this cautionary tale. If, if we do nothing, if this continues, if this grows, if the, the people in Bolden to come to Charlottesville in 2017 and say ours and say, this town isn't yours, you don't belong here, then how will that look in the future in relation to, to you know, how we treat our infrastructure, what communities are invested in, how we treat our planet like all of those things to me are connected. And so then I was pushing it forward, just nudging it a little bit into the future and thinking about the idea of what could happen. And so that's where all those pieces came together. So in the story, you know, the teller is a, dis a black imagined descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, who's grown up in town. And her, her name is what? Denisha Love. Denisha, yeah, Denisha, Hem Denisha Hemings Love. Yes, Denisha Hemings Love. And so she becomes the teller. And then... I don't know. From there, I had a lot of energy and a lot of ideas. I always love a neighborhood, a course of people. And so I really used my own neighborhood. I live in Charlottesville and First Street, the street in the story is like right around the corner from me. So it's where I walked my dogs for the past 20 years and where when my child was little, you know, I'd push the stroller up and down and I teach students that live in that um, segment of housing. And so I, you know, it's where I've waved at students over many years. So I had this really um, kind of peripheral but intimate relationship with that community and with the neighborhood so I could draw on all the kinds of houses and the kinds of people I see and um, imagine what it might be like and what it might have been like in the past and what it could be like in the future. And so I really was drawing from things that I could, could imagine. It just there was a lot of energy there. And as a literary writer, my husband always laughs and says like, can you make something happen? And like, it was really exciting to have a story where like a lot of things were going to happen. And I knew there was movement from the very first scene, you know, I knew that they were going to be fleeing, that there was going to be, you know, corporal da danger and also psychological danger really plays a big part, I think, in all the stories and certainly in that one too. Like, I was, I was, well. I was, uh, kind of joking with myself. I was like, it's almost like, it's like a it's like a western but of course i was calling it in my head i was like it's an eastern you know because <laughs> you, know, you have like for people too who have never been to monticello i have actually a couple times I'm, I'm not typically somebody who loves touring maybe as i'm getting older probably now in middle age i do love it but when i was younger i'd be like this is boring monticello i actually was very impressed by when i took my like eighth grade trip there can you talk about 
the topography of the Charlottesville area and where Monticello is situated with respect to town, just so people can get a sense of the terrain because it factors so heavily, you know, so heavily into the story. Yeah. Well, first, let me just say it. The way I thought of it, Brad, was that this was like a zombie flick and the white supremacists were the zombies because, you know, a zombie movie is always about like the human condition and what it means to be human. (laughs) And so that was, that was kind of my frame and, you know, they're sieged up there and the zombies are at the gate. I'm so bad with uh, topography, but I'm thinking in my mind of a map of Charlottesville. And so I live kind of on the, the Southern side of town of Charlottesville. And from where I live, you can just go a little bit East and you're like, there's basically the path the characters take in the story is how I would get to Monticello. You're, you're pulling out of first street, you're going down East a little bit, and then you're on Monticello, you take a right onto Monticello Ave. So you're going East and South a little bit. And then, you know, you go past the community college and you take this windy road up past the orchard, up past a couple of kind of tourist sites, the Taverna, and then you're, you're at Monticello. So it's, it's a very closely situated to Charlottesville and the university of Virginia is also Thomas Jefferson's university. That was one of the things he was most proud of. And so right here in the center of town, we also have this symbol of Thomas Jefferson. And so our whole community has, there's this kind of, you know, reverence for Thomas Jefferson. We have something called the Tom Tom festival here, which is kind of a contemporary look at ideas and, you know, around Thomas Jefferson, not around Thomas Jefferson, but just around Charlottesville. You know, there's a little bust of Thomas Jefferson's everywhere. It's just like a thing. You know, like... I was I thought you were going to tell me that the Tom Tom Festival was like a, a Coachella type thing, but it's not. Thank God. It's not. It's not. A co- it's not we don't have anything like that. <laughs> Maybe it wants to be in moments, but no. But it has all kinds of things. It has art, design. It has some really cool stuff. I'm not going to be disparaging of the Tom Tom Festival. But what I'm saying is the echo of this idea of Thomas Jefferson and his aspirations is kind of omnipresent. And, you know, kids take field trips up to Monticello and at some grade level and so forth. And so for me, living here, I've gone up there with taking family members or, you know, someone comes into town and you go up to Monticello and so forth. It's like a thing to do. And it is it's really beautiful. It's really well curated. And it is particularly when I first moved here, it was absolutely muted on the subject of slavery. And then also in, you know, for a while, they were really in in flat out denial of the idea of, of Sally Hemings, you know, being, you know, what I call the baby mama of Thomas Jefferson's black children, but, but they have really evolved and changed. So I would say now they are much more of a leader in the sense that they have all these, they've kind of developed a relationship with the enslaved descendants of Monticello. They have like a whole community kind of outreach where people come there and they have woven that story of the Hemingses and of Sally Hemings, because it's not just Sally Hemings. Like the Hemingses were a family that were intimately tied to Thomas Jefferson, the cooks, you know, the, the, the French chef, you know, of Thomas Jefferson was a Hemings. You know, the Hemings is there are members of that family who who built some of the most beautiful parts of that house. So you talk about this idea of this house that Jefferson designed, his wealth, but also just the, the craftsmanship of the things he could have and the way he could have them from the finest things to the nails that children made that, you know, black enslaved children made dependent on other people. And those people's stories, in my estimation, deserve to also be part of the story of Monticello. And for a long time, they were not. 
And this story is, a, you know, in one sense, it's a it's in a tragedy, but there's a way in which it's a fantasy of claiming of, you know, as a black American, being able to claim some stake in this space that is a symbol for America, too. And if not a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, you know, the person who designed a place and the people who made that place possible in so many ways, if, if she can't claim it, then who then who might be able to who else but her? Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the great things that this story does, like maybe like among the most powerful things that it does, is it it makes real to the reader what a powerful symbol of America's like terrible and complicated racial past Monticello is. You you weave some of the history into the story. It's not like super heavy on history, but it finds its way in there. And, you know, some of it was news to me. Like, I was like, oh, I mean, or or it was like a, a reminder. Like, I had read, you know, I'm sure I'd read somewhere once that Sally Hemings was like 14 when she got together with 41-year-old Thomas Jefferson. Not only that, Sally Hemings was given to, Sally Hemings and like what, her mother and siblings were given to Thomas Jefferson as a wedding gift by the, by his father-in-law, his, like his, you know, his wife's father gave him these slaves like it was like a set of steak knives or something i think is is that absolutely i said a a dinner plates but yeah yeah so it's like something like that i mean you're just like oh and it's just and then like this question of like do you think she loved him and someone i want to say uh nasha says in the story she's like how could you possibly love someone who has that much power over you right Am I misremembering? Yeah, no, all of that is true. And the thing that really got me that I learned from taking so many tours, I took a lot of tours at Monticello because I wanted to understand Monticello through the story it told itself because that's what Denasia would know. You know, she's, a, you know, work there as an intern. So she's hearing what the docents say. She's hearing her family story. She's not a scholar about Monticello. So the thing that got me was that Sally Hemings was – this is, you know, she she was half sisters with Martha Jefferson. So in other words, Martha, Thomas Jefferson's wife, his white wife that he married and had children with, you know, her father was also Sally Hemings's father. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Her father basically had children with one of his slaves and then gave that group, that family of slaves to them as wedding gifts. So this person is Martha Jefferson's half sister. And, and like you say, That's like, crazy. <laughs> yeah, imagine having a white sister who's free and privileged in all these ways, and you're her slave, and vice versa. Imagine being, I mean, it is like it, it bends my mind to think of how all of this was just normal. Thomas Jefferson. Who's, you know, for most of my lifetime, like you said, like when I visited Monticello back in 1988, when I was in eighth grade or whatever, there was no talk of the Hemingses. None of this stuff was in the, in the dialogue. All of this is recent, you know, these changes, but you know, he's this guy who, you know, is kind of uh, caricatured or like a cartoon hero, basically in the history books of my youth as like, you know, wrote the declaration of independence or whatever. And was our third president and a founding father. And, oh, by the way, also owned 600 slaves. Over his whole lifetime. Yeah, he had 600 in total. Yeah. And then kept a a 14-year-old baby mama and had how many children with her? So 
she had six children in all, but only four lived to adulthood. So all of her children, you know, the story goes that he basically promised her in France that any children she had with him would become free people. And that was a way to lure her back to Virginia because she could go free in France. She wasn't enslaved there. She went there to assist him. This was after Martha had died. And so to assist him and the family with, you know, being, you know, a servant basically to him. And so I think about home here too, right? So there's two things. One is she has this promise from him. And two is all of her family is is in Virginia. All of her, you know, her all of her extended family and everything she knows, Virginia is home to her as opposed to France. She could have stayed in France and become a free person and not necessarily had a lot of resources to get started, but she could have done that along with this promise. So that makes me think too about this this project of this my monticello though all the stories like what is it what is home what are your ties to other people you know would you leave someone behind i really tried to explore that i think people it's really hard to conceive of slavery as a white american or a black american it's really hard to conceive of you know the what people have to wager and how they how they have to make decisions and i thought that was interesting for me and kind of dark to think about that in the novella and try to think about what you would do for your children, how you, again, how do you manage an impossible situation and how do you manage apocalypse both in your own life and in the world, you know? So, and also just the complicated, like you always have to take things in context, you know, historically the times that they were living in, obviously slavery was happening all over the American South. It was the way of life. And somebody as brilliant as Thomas Jefferson is writing, you know, in his writings, I don't know if it was his diaries that you were quoting or something. It was, it was Notes on the State of Virginia, which is a, uh, a book he wrote in like the 1780s. That's what I quoted. And yeah, the book he published. Yeah. But it basically, he's like, slavery is heinous and awful. And yet he also says black people are inferior to white people. And the only way that you know, this could like, like freeing them could possibly work as if we send them away, right? We separate the races. Yeah. So it's like, man, that, that that's a jumble. I mean, you know, and it's like, this is the guy who was, I mean, what, he was 24 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. I think what's so troubling for people, or at least for me, for so many of us is to consider how can somebody be that smart and that dumb at the same time? Do you know what I'm saying? Like that cold and like that harsh and also somebody who could be so eloquent on the subject of freedom and human liberty and be like this polymath who knew so much about so much and yet so little about so much that mattered. I think there's a way that, you know, I don't, I don't separate myself out from him in that sense. I'm neither as brilliant nor as terrible as him, but I do think that that's what people can do really well is you can be terrible. I can be terrible. Let's put it this way. I can be terrible when it, when it adds to my comfort, I can be terrible and go, you know, that's what that story buying a house ahead of the apocalypse is about. You know, here's a character that sees apocalypse and she's like, man, we really got to prepare for this. I wish it wasn't like this, but also I want to buy some stuff and have nice hair and have a nice house. I mean, I think we all make decisions in our world, the way we're interconnected that have suffering on the end of them. And we continue to make them, even though we have an inkling of suffering because it's comfortable and because 
every system around us and every story that we're being told tries to insulate us from that truth and tries to distract us from that truth so that we can continue to do horrible things. <laughs> I mean, I really, unfortunately, think that's, that is how it is. And I think that he both recognized that it was a horror, slavery was, even if whatever, benevolent, not whatever. It's like not good. He absolutely recognized that, but also had to see the world through a lens that allowed him to still benefit from it because it was the story of the day and it was providing comfort for him and allowing him to do have the power and have the resources to do so many things that he wanted to do and, and enjoyed doing. Yeah, I think that's true. That, and like, I guess I like now I'm like, how do you, how can I live a life where I am doing the least amount of harm? I think I just got to stay in my garage here. Just not leave. <laughs> this is why writers just like, we just get into our hovels and we're just like, okay, I'm just going to stare at this flashing cursor and try to do as little damage as possible. <laughs> It's really hard. I have empathy for for all the people. That's the public school side of me. It's like I don't I I absolutely hold people to account, but I also recognize all the ways in which I'm failing and that are and how hard it can be to do right in some ways or I don't know. I just I hope the stories do that where it's pointing at one thing, but it's also pulling us back around to ourselves and to each other. And it's all connected in this way that, you know, and, and by that same token, an act of kindness, an act of repair, an attempt to do better, all that matters too, as much as all this harm, you know, yeah. that takes place in the story. That's a good point to make because I, I don't think this collection would be as effective if it were just like a diatribe. There's a lot of heart in it and human understanding. Maybe like this is what, this is a way in which fiction can be more effective than say a polemic or like a, an, like a strong, strongly worded essay or something, you know, because it takes us into the humanity of these people. And, you know, I wonder, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess like I think of Jefferson, like that's a pretty generous read on Jefferson. I wonder I guess I'm wondering, like, what what would I actually have thought of him? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If I could have been in a room with the guy, I guess he was a world class politician, so I probably would have been like, he's so charming, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> guy. But like, it's just fascinating to think about him and all of his complexity, and, like how much he embodied. And I want to say I read though that his slaves were not necessarily treated kindly. Like, you know what I mean? First of all, they were enslaved, but second of all, like there was some brutality on the grounds of Monticello that happened, right? Like. The, you know, I didn't do a ton of research on this, but from what I've seen and heard, he outsourced his brutality. In other words, he had overseers and he kind of, it felt like he insulated himself. He did not particularly, you know, lead with that, but that if, you know, you got to have this much <laughs> product coming out, you know, when you, when you make a person, um, responsible to have that happen then certainly people were beaten and lashed and so forth and people were sold and people were certain I know that after Jefferson died he basically made you know arrangements before he died to say I really want this land to stay together I want my family to have their wealth he was in debt 
the plantation was in debt and he sold off a bunch of people. And so those were people who were sold from families, sold, you know, to the South, which was not where people wanted to go. They were sold, you know, down to, to cotton and things that were just a lot harsher. Virginia wasn't a cotton state, just the conditions were worse. So he made that choice as opposed to say, I'll let this land be broken up and I will pay my debt some other way and my family won't be as wealthy. That was his, you know, he was, that was his finishing move. That was his finishing move. So he certainly contributed to harm. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, no doubt about it. And I'm not going to spoil it. It's such a rich novella and such a gripping read. Like you said, the zombie, I I was saying it's an Eastern, but it's a zombie. The zombie is a better, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, zombie flick kind of vibe. It's really intense and dystopian and uh, great speculative fiction. But the gist is that you have unrest in town, essentially a, a race war breaking out in town. And you have a group of people who flee the violence. And it's a group, like you say, that didn't, that, you know, some people, some of the people in the group know one another, but it's this kind of like ragtag group of people who escape under great duress in a hail of bullets. And they wind up taking high ground at Monticello. And the only thing I'll say in addition to that is what a badass sense, like badass is the, the word that I would use to describe it. It was so badass to have Nasha, especially uh, as a descendant of Jefferson, to be reclaiming that space. Like when they go into the house, I'm just like, yeah, like, I don't know. There was just something kind of like uh, awesome about it. You must have been smiling as you wrote. I mean, I don't know. It just, it felt awesome and it felt... It was- uh, fun i don't I know i love that part it was no i i say it's like the night in the museum you know i mean it's like a pretty dark story but that part is like kind of wonderful because for me visiting monticello that has not been my experience i mean no one's touching everything but i certainly felt that extra layer of uh, this isn't for me or what's not being said or the ghosts of the things that are here that aren't being focused on and so to write that story and to even to visit it became fun because i went on like the fancy tour where you get to go upstairs. And I was like, I'm going to put this character here and this character here. And it was like, all of a sudden, the actual space of Monticello felt like mine and all the objects became something that I could manipulate in my fiction and touch and hold and think about and make into symbols, um, not of what Monticello used to say about it, but of what I wanted to say about it and how I thought it might reflect these characters and might center them in this different way and might more truly uh, reflect this idea of America that I wish were true and that I hope could be more true, you know? And so it was really fun and it was fun to think, to write this. Yeah, it was, it, there was, there was pleasure in, in putting, you know, my violet in Thomas Jefferson's bed and yeah, so forth. Right, right, right. Pretty fun. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, and like the research process. I mean, obviously you're right there in town. So you have Monticello, you know, a short drive from your house, like, how many trips did you take? And were you like walking through with a notebook and take it? Are you allowed to take photos? And, you know, like, cause it is, you're great on the details of the place. It seemed obvious to me that you had spent time there. Yeah. I'm like, I'm really, I really am a bad historian, but I, I knew that 
like I said, one nice thing is I just needed to understand Monticello as Nasha would. And I had to know it as a contemporary person who has learned the history, both the histories that were excluding and histories that were more inclusive and also has a family history piece. And then I wanted the physical space to feel really real. So I did go up there a bunch of times, maybe seven or eight times. Then the pandemic happened as I was editing, you know, I'd finished the whole collection, but I was doing my final edits. But luckily, one nice thing about Monticello is they have a really great resources online. You can like walk through the house online. You can like you know, push a little icon and this is the clock above Thomas Jefferson's bed, blah, blah, blah. So I did a lot of, I did do a lot of that. And then I, uh, yeah, I went up there with a notebook. You couldn't take pictures inside the house. So I would just draw little notes and try to remember, can you see the garden from the, you know, little walkway and all those details I really tried to get as precise as possible. And then after the pandemic, when they reopened, you could take pictures in the house. So I actually went back up there and did take a few pictures inside the house. They they finally let people take pictures inside the house. So, yeah. Well, it's beautifully done. I think everybody listening should read it. And uh, it's now going to be adapted by Netflix, right? It is. Yeah. So Netflix bought the novella. So they're going to make My Monticello. And it's in the screenwriting phase right now. And I actually, the great thing was I actually reached out to Monticello super early in the process and was like, I'm writing this book called my Monticello. (laughs) I'm going to send you guys one, you know, I'd really love to like, you know, have you look at it and so forth. And they were just like, there was like crickets on the other end for a really long time. But then I started getting the good blurbs and a little bit more attention around the project. And then the screenwriter, (laughs) you know, had sold to Netflix. So he had actually contacted them to get a special tour, you know, cause he's writing about the house and he really wanted to see it. Uh, he came to Charlottesville. And so they, um, they, they, they did finally call me back and now they're very nice to me and I got to do an event there. Oh. <laughs> they're carrying the book in the bookshop. So someone noted that if my refugees have to go there in the near future, they can read about themselves in the book about <laughs> that is <Right>. featured there. <laughs> so who is screenwriting? May I ask? So Brian Parker, is a screenwriter and he is actually in New York and not in LA. Okay. So, and do we have, a yeah, di- do we have director or I know how these things, there's attachments that happen. Are there directors and stars attached at this point or do we not know yet? So there are not direct. Well, yes, there are not, there's not a director or stars attached at this point, but you know, as soon as I know, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. I expect a call on the day of, <laughs> but, and I, Last question, is this is going to be like a standalone feature or are they developing it as a series? So they actually, you know, I had never done this before, but I talked to people on Zoom about, you know, what this could be. And it's going to be just a feature film, but we'll see. There could be other things. Well, I'm excited about it. Now that I've read it, I want to see this adapted. And it's a great, not not everything translates great to screen obviously but i could i can just see this being a really cool film and i'm actually happy to hear because i was thinking about it i was like i guess you could make a series about it but you would really have to extrapolate like it would be you'd have to really build it out and take it in new directions that are totally separate from the book but as a standalone it's got everything you would need for a great film so i'm i'm gonna be very uh, keen to watch it when it comes out and just huge congratulations. You must be so excited to have a book come out, period, but to have it get this kind of reception, uh, you know, especially as somebody who has been 
doing the work for a long time and who fought through all the different, uh, you know, rejections and disappointments that you fought through. It's a great story. I love hearing stories about like this. So congrats to you. Thank you so much. And I have to say that the funnest part about it is my parents are just collecting all the papers. Like if there's a review in the Washington Post, they like buy out every Washington Post in the town and like all relatives. I'm like, what are you going to do with that stack of papers? And they're like, I don't care. I'm getting them all. It's, it's, it's really pleasurable. That's like really nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. You can see, you'd be like, see, mom and dad, this is what I've been working on in my office, you know, and let them have their fun, you know, let them, what, what do you call it? Um, you would know this as an art teacher. Why am I forgetting this? When you take paper and you, you case it oh, in plastic. Oh, paper mache? No, paper no, no, mache? no. What you put it in plastic so it can't rip. It's like oh, preserving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do know, like not decoupage, but like, yeah, I know, laminate. Laminate. That's laminate. the word. It's been a while. I was like, why was the word? I was thinking overhead projector, but <laughs> <laughs> You know, these bits and pieces of my educational youth coming back to me. But yeah, I'm sure your parents could have those uh, reviews laminated. They could have them framed. There's all sorts of things. when They could do paper mache. They could, uh, you know, they could make all sorts of art with them. So <laughs> I hope you encourage this. And uh, are you working on anything else? Yeah. So this is such a hard question. I am, I have, so I tend to like really build up energy around something before I work on it. And then I kind of need time to write a somewhat complete draft without a lot of interruption and, you know, doing publicity for this book is not giving me a lot of un uninterrupted time, but I kind of have like all the folders right now. And I kind of have two bigger projects and then just a bunch of story ideas. So I'm excited to kind of start working on something again. I'm starting to get excited about making that space. I know that I need to kind of create I can see it. Like I see, I already have my plans, like the new year. It's like, I just need to create like a period of space that is uninterrupted and also just more space in general, because I think you need space to be able to write. It's not just an hour. You just need like actual mental space where you're not thinking about what you're going to say about something you made in the past, but you're kind of in, imagining into the future. So that's what I need. I'm going to be doing. So what you're telling me is that I am ruining your ability <laughs> to create the next Jocelyn Johnson masterpiece. I'm so sorry. I, I, we will end on that note. I, I will get out of your way and allow you, no. <laughs> allow you to I'm get so back, to, get back to your, your space. But I get it. You know, you, but the thing is too, is you also, I always say you got to celebrate victories as a writer. You know, um, this book is getting a great reception. Readers are excited about it. Critics are excited about it. Like this can be, it can be weird. I know to have to talk about something you made in the past and to have to talk about it repeatedly, but I hope you're enjoying the moment because just by nature of what we do, you know, you write a book, it takes years to do. You don't get that many moments like this in a, in a career. So, you know, enjoy it, enjoy the party a little bit. And then once the new year hits, you know, hopefully things get quiet for you and you can work on what all you got like a million stories in two different novels. Is that what you said? <laughs> kind of, but they won't all pan out. You know, you have to kind of see where the energy lies. So I'm going to be playing around with thinking about where the most excitement for me lies and where I think I can do something more interesting um, and then cross my fingers and toes and okay. go there. Last question though. You say you have to build up energy before you work on something. I get that. Yes. I get that. Like I know writers who are like that. They sort of like have the whole thing in their head to some extent and then they sit down to write. Are you 
is it like a note taking process? Is it just a, is it just internal? Are you just thinking, 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 and you get like an intuitive sense of when you're ready to sit down to write? Like, what does that actually look like? So it's kind of both. So I, I do, I start to kind of be like, there'll be energy around an idea and I'm kind of thinking on it, but then I'll get like little blurbs like, oh, this could be this, or this could be this. And then I, I email myself, (laughs) I have like a list. I have like a really long list. I'm a list maker. And so I have, um, you know, I'll write or right now I have a file. And so I'll just have like, like an underlined sentence and then like just something like a line of text, a line of dialogue, a character or an image or something. And so I'll come back and kind of pull some of those together and kind of see what comes from that. Okay. Well, I wish you luck and I thank you for the time. It's been great to meet you and talk with you and uh, congrats one more time on this uh, wonderful collection. Thank you so much. And I really am. I'm enjoying that anyone cares at all. You know, if you're a writer, usually you write something and <laughs> your mom says that was pretty good. And uh, <laughs> so it's 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 an absolute pleasure to have people be interacting with things, something that I made. All right, folks, that's it. That's Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. And her new collection is called My Monticello, available now from Henry Holt. Jocelyn can be found on the internet at JocelynNJohnson.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at JocelynNJohnson. She's also on uh, Instagram. She's on Facebook. The book, again, is called My Monticello, a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, a Kirkus Best Fiction of 2021 selection, a Washington Post Notable Work of Fiction, a Book Forum Best Book of the Year, and NPR Books We Love of 2021. The list goes on. My Monticello by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode, more than 700 and counting, all available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported program. If you like this program, support this program if you can. For as little as $1 a month, you can uh, show your support over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash other P-P-L pod. As you move up the scale, you get uh, stuff, you know? You go $3 a month, $5 a month, $20 a month, whatever it is, you get stuff. A book club subscription, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday on an annual basis patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you have something you'd like to say to me you can email me at letters at other don't forget that the other people podcast has its own official app it too is free go get it if it's giving you any trouble if you have it and it's glitchy uh, it's because we're doing some maintenance on it recently try deleting it and then re-uploading it at the app store it's free It should fix things, hopefully. All right? Okay. I think that's it.